0: Hello and welcome to A Life in Music with Russell Scott. This podcast is dedicated to all you performers out there who want to be the very best you can be. Whether you're just starting out, a budding professional, just love performing, or have been professionally working in the industry for years, this podcast will help you be the very best. Thank you for joining us today and don't forget you can check out the website alifeinmusic.com. Now, without further ado, please welcome the man himself, with over 35 years professional performance experience, 100,000 record sales behind him, and a career spanning the worlds of classical music and musical theatre, on film, on television, on radio and on stage. This is A Life in Music with Russell Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Life in Music with Russell Scott, the podcast that is dedicated to all you performers out there that want to be the very best you can be. And I want to start by thanking you all so much for tuning in to my podcast on a regular basis. We have a really loyal listenership now and that's growing on a weekly basis and I'm really excited by that because it means we're getting out there and helping so many people and bringing great content to you. So thank you. I know that you are literally all over the world. We're based in the UK and I've seen the stats and we're getting so many people from far field as uh, America and Australia and Europe and it's just fantastic so thank you so much. Now today we have a very special guest indeed and I'm really excited to have done this podcast interview just a few days ago from southeast London. I'm going to just go straight to the interview right now uh, and uh, and here it is. Well, here we are on a cold winter's day in south-east London. I'm sitting in a very lovely warm apartment with a lovely hot cup of tea in hand. Now, we were expecting a nice quiet afternoon, but uh, sadly we've got some background noise going on as there's some building work going on uh, unexpectedly outside. Anyway, it's time to introduce my very special guest today, and very special he is. He's someone that I've been wanting to interview for some time, and I'm really excited about this one. He is very, very well known for speaking his mind, sometimes controversially, but always true to his word and true to his heart, he always says it how it is. He's been a theatre critic for over 15 years, and I am thrilled to introduce the very lovely Mark Shenton. So, hi, Mark. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm great. So let's, let's just start. Let's just get a little bit of history. Let's get a bit of background for the people that perhaps only know you as a critic and they see your name everywhere and they see you tweeting away and talking about uh, the arts and the industry and the performers and the amazingness that, that is the industry that we live in. Um, tell us a little bit about how this all started, where you're from, your background and how you, how you got into writing.
1: Yes, I was born and brought up in Johannesburg, South Africa. I lived there nought to, s- to sixteen. At the age of sixteen, I moved to my pa- my family moved to London, uh, which is where we've basically been ever since. Um, but uh, I obviously came to London, finished my own A levels here, and then went to university uh, here. I went to Cambridge, read law, um, uh, and but always wanted to get to the theatre. The theatre was my passion from the time I saw a play at about the age of. 12 or 13, The Deep Blue Sea, Terence Rattigan, I remember it so vividly to this day, and it remains one of my favorite plays of all time, a play that I just do not understand how that resonated for a 12 or 13 year old boy. It's a play about um, unrequited love and and, and suppressed desire. Um, And uh, somehow that play spoke to me, and of course at that point I hadn't experienced myself um, uh, unrequited love. I would come to experience that many times in my life. But um, uh, it's kind of amazing how that, that just set me off on a new Route and led me to actually where I am today. One seeing one play at that age, I was part of a school party. My school was taken to see it in, in a theatre in Johannesburg. And um, and nowadays, when I see uh, when I go to the theatre and see a school party, and my heart always drops because I think oh, it's going to be a disrupted performance. I always remember the twelve year old me who went to the theatre and saw a play and changed his life. Hopefully, there'll be one of those kids will be watching a play in London tonight doing the same thing.
0: And um, were you, your, your parents into the arts? Were your parents into, into theatre? Did they say that have the same passions? I mean you say you, you loved it from the second you went into a theatre. Um, where did that all stem from? Was it, did, did it go further back than that?
1: Um. My parents are not uh, are not in the arts at all, actually, although my father was did some amateur theater, so I suppose there was a, a st- an element of of theater in the blood, but not really um and they certainly did, i wasn't taken to the theater as a child or anything like that um but i, I, I was a movie goer as a, as a kid I mean I used to go to see films uh, as as much as I now see plays um so I guess I was was interested in narrative storytelling somehow and relating to and finding stories um about life lived, lived vicariously almost i think that's a, cl- a clue to actually where i am is that the, the, the idea of of you know living sh- uh, somebody else's reality um and i think uh, the arts do touch in do tap into that for many of us who who, who love it um we just we, we love storytelling and we love hearing people's stories
0: and you talk. You talk about. You talk about storytelling. Have you? You obviously went into writing. Um, you can tell us a little bit about that in a minute. But had, had you thought of of writing books? Or had you had you thought of really becoming an author or writing of plays or, or theatre? Or was it just that you just loved what you did? You loved where you're going, and you just wanted.
1: You just loved the stories. Yeah, early, early on. Um, I I don't know, and I, this is an extraordinary story actually, get, uh, with hindsight. Is that when I was about, so I saw that play at 12 or 13, and when I was about 14, there was a competition, and I started going to the theatre a lot already, immediately. When I was about 14, there was a competition in the local newspaper, um, so the Johannesburg newspaper, The Star. Um, there was a play that had been slated by the professional critics in, in Johannesburg called Who's Afraid of, of who, who Killed Agatha Christie? It was a, b- a very bad thriller by a man called Tudor Gates. Um, and I um, think English player they came to was in Johannesburg and it was got lethal reviews and they did a competition in the local newspaper for people readers to send in their reviews and I sent in a review it was a competition and I and it wasn't meant for ch- for kids it was a, it was an adult competition but I was 13 or 14 at the time and I sent in my review and won the competition and so somehow the die was cast that, that was, and I remember at school I used to be terribly good at in, in English literature at writing uh, r- reviews of books I mean that was my thing uh, you know it was, uh, so somehow it was, there was something in there that I responded to and and actually one of the things I now realise um, going as I go to I'm I'm a true theatre addict I mean I'm an, I'm an addict of many things coffee is one of them and sugar is another but um, I am a true theatre addict and I go to the theatre between six and ten times a week on, on on by and large some of it for work but a lot of it for pleasure um, and. I suppose one of the things that, that I've realized about being a critic is that I'm able to go for for work as, uh, to the theater as much as I do, but more importantly to go for free is very important <laughs> because frankly my habit would be unsustainable if I was paying for it
0: <laughs> and do you, I mean, you you clearly never get tired of going you you clearly love it and you do it because you love it but do you find it difficult that when you go to the theater just just for the love of going to the theater that you want to critique it? and you, you, you're, just, you're there, you can't switch off from, from the business brain.
1: I always, always carry a notebook, and I, the notebook's always out, even when I go and see a sh- the show on a last night, because often if I love a show, I'll go to the very last night, and I'll have the notebook out on the last night. You can't, I don't, can't switch off that part of my brain, it's true. But equally, I, one of my colleagues not so long ago asked me, well, what do you do for pleasure? What, you know, what's your leisure time activity? And I, my answer honestly was for pleasure, I go and see Bended Like Beckham. Um, because I'd seen that, I, obviously I'd seen and reviewed the show when it first opened, but it became you know, one of the most pleasurable things in my life at the time. I would go again and again and again. I think, I, I mean, not that many. I'm not I'm not one of your, those those mad Les Mis fans who see it 300 times. I probably saw Bended Like Beckham eight or nine times in the end. But but I, it was just a show I adored. And, and that's what I will do. For, for pleasure, I will go and see a show again. a show that. So I'm not on, on work duty, but I'm there to enjoy it. Um, next week, I'm going to go and see Prom- Promises, promises again at the Playhouse because it's a show, it's a musical. I adore. I love the score, um, and I just want to go and enjoy it. I, I'm not working. And how how do you, how
0: do you remain objective? How do you remain unbiased? I mean, this is a, I'm, I'm going to try, I suppose, and ask ask the questions that that everybody's thinking about critics. And I think I think critics, sadly, have have. Um, they get a bit of a hard, hard time because everybody thinks, oh, the critics are in, everybody gets very nervous, everyone gets, you know, those opening nights and those previews, everybody's very nervous because the critics are there and you're wondering, is this make or break of us, if it is, you know, and uh, it, it's difficult and I, I think that you kind of get a little bit of a hard time because you're doing, you're doing your job, but how do you remain totally objective and unbiased and go into every production, whether you love it or hate it, uh, with an open mind?
1: One thing I do as a critic is I always go, I go in, I travel. Hopefully, always I always I always go. Nobody goes to the theatre, I, I don't think, uh, uh, unless you're a real curmudgeon going along, not wanting a good time. I want every show to be brilliant. Of course, not every show can be brilliant, so I, but one has to sort of accept that going in that you're going to be disappointed. Uh, true objectivity, there is no such thing. It's always a matter of opinion, um, uh, and and some people some people's opinions count more than others. And I think what happens with critics, which is you know, everybody's now a critic, of course, that's the other thing, is that everybody with a Twitter account or a Facebook account, you know, everyone's posting their own reviews, but some carry more weight than others, and the reason why professional critics have some power, although it's diminished, I think, over the years, uh, as social media has taken hold, um, but critics have some power because because they they have earned the trust and respect of their readership. So, you know, I always think Twitter is sort of the ultimate democracy, because people only follow you if you've got something to say. You can't force Anybody to, to follow you, and they, they they make a choice to follow you, and it's only if you're saying interesting things that they do so. So you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not that I'm James Corden with five million followers, but I I have thirty five thousand or thirty six thousand followers now, and that's valuable um, because because thirty six thousand people think it's worth I've got something to say, um, and 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 that that's a nice feeling to, to to have. So it's a question of. A building up trust with a within readership, um, and, uh, and also longevity, I mean, the fact is I've been doing this for a, quite a while now, um, I, I mean, I gave up, full, uh, I mean, my last full-time job I gave up in 2002, I was working in theatre in journalism, um, uh, inside, you know, in, uh, for a press agency, the Press Association, uh, but I gave that up because in the wake of 9-11 I thought life's too short and I can't carry on doing a job I hate, so I went freelance, um, and... And, and I've been a full-time theatre critic ever since. Um, it does mean you have to work really, really hard because the rates have gone down or have, or have stayed static or for all the, pretty much all that time. And journalism is, in, is, going, is going through a very treacherous period at the moment, but. You know what? Nobody forces me to do this, and I absolutely love doing what I do. So you know, it's a price literally worth paying. I mean, in the sense that 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 I probably could have earned more if I'd stayed being a lawyer to, when after a training at Cambridge, but and I probably could have earned more if I'd stayed in in a full-time job. But actually, I'm I've never been happier professionally or personally. And that's something that I I always
0: preach I suppose is that if you don't enjoy doing something you shouldn't do it you get one life it is a short life as cliched and cheesy as that sounds we do get one chance in life and we should do what we love and clearly that's what you do and you you mentioned that you you trained as a lawyer
1: so tell me a bit about that Right, well, I went to, I, I read law at Cambridge. I didn't go as far as training to become a lawyer. I didn't, didn't do articles or or, 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 or pupillage for, for to become a particular I knew early on that law was not for me. Um, and the only reason I did laws at university is because I thought everyone's going to have an English degree. Uh, and everyone does have an English degree in the arts. Um, and I thought maybe law would be a bit more practical. In fact, it proved not to be practical at all and uh, so when I bought my flat I had to get a lawyer and a professional lawyer <laughs> to do it for me um, but you know I'm, I'm sure that law is fascinating for those who, who love it and um, just as being a doctor is fascinating if you if, if you want to be a doctor I happen to just love going to the theatre so I have actually almost found the perfect job.
0: And I, I, I've always considered you uh, I've always considered you a very intelligent uh, critic uh, there's always, you always have good instinct, I find, whether it's, you know, whether, uh, you, know, n- not you can't always agree with everything everybody ever writes, um, good, bad, or indifferent. But I do have a huge amount of respect for you um, as a critic, and I do think you have good instinct. But what I'm interested is that that's not all critics are like that. And some critics, as you say, you know, you have tens of thousands of followers. Some have much, much more than that. But do you think some critics write things for
1: effect Rather than actually to, to help, um, motives of critics are very interesting. I mean, obviously there are there are and have been. There was famously uh, in in New York there was a famous critic, John Simon, who used to write the most lethal, personally wounding copy imaginable. Um, it was very funny to read indeed, but it was so vindictive and and you know and, and of course you know you can uh, there's there's nothing more entertaining to read than 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 a, than a review full of gags and full of put downs, um, but uh, and the, his famous review of, of um, which I can quote verbatim, uh, of, of Diana Rigg, where Diana Rigg appeared naked in a play on Broadway called Abelard and Heloise, and he said of her that she was built like a brick mausoleum with insufficient flying buttresses. <laughs> um, so, it, it, you know, those sort of lines are, are, are lovely to read, and probably not lovely to receive uh, in Diana Rigg's case, but what was interesting, um, you know, so, so and I, but I think that that doesn't really have a, have a great place in, in theater journalism or criticism. Having said that, I actually, Interviewed Diana Rigg not so long ago, and I asked her if she still collected those stories because this book was it was done twenty five years ago and and uh, is long out of print. In fact, so I said, you know, you should do a second edition. And she, I said, you still ask people their their stories, and she was in a play with Simon Ward at the time called Pygmalion Um, uh, he was, he, Simon Ward is no alas no longer with us, but not bef- not long before that he'd done a uh, a, pr- a touring production of Manus and King Charles, King George the Third, the Alan Bennett play, um, and he ha- he said he told Diana that uh, he just had a review for his performance in that from a critic who said that he looked like a permanently perplexed Anne Whittaker, and 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 as Diana Riggs said that, I said. Oh, shit! I wrote that line <laughs> so so you know we, we we all fall into the trap of, of of occasionally punching below the belt, but you know having said that that wasn't malicious it was just uh, <laughs> it, for me, it was just appropriate
0: and another ten thousand twitter followers <laughs> it, i think I think there's this perception that, then that uh, for audiences that are, actually what I mean what I'm quite interested I'm going to sort of move around here a little bit is that is what what power critics feel they have over a production because I think there is this perception certainly from uh, producers and from a cast that you know you're reading the news the following day after opening night. You're reading the reviews and basically if you've got great reviews, three star plus, you're you're going to be okay. If you get poor reviews, that's the end. It's 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 over. Do how much does an audience really pay attention to the star ratings and the review in terms of wanting to go and see a show, or does it really not matter? Does it be, if people have a love for a musical, will they just go anyway, or what? How do you feel that it, it
1: affects? The Best example of the power of critics, frankly, is We Will Rock You. Um, it, it opened uh, to some of the most lethal reviews in in, in history. Um, um, I mean, it, it, um, famously, the Telegraph said said this is prol feed at its worst. It can be summed up in two words: rock bottom. Again, I'm quoted verbatim because I've I, it's a great review and I rem- remember it well. There's memorable, memorable bad reviews. You just remember remember them forever. Um, but having said that, this is a show that the public embraced totally. Obviously, the it had a great selling point, namely the, the, the Queen back catalogue and Freddie Mercury having having died and all that. Um, and it ran for 12 years in one of London's largest theatres. And the Olivier Awards do an annual award for audience award, which the audience vote for through Radio 2. Um, and it won the audience award for favourite musical. And this is a show that should have been closed in six months if the critics' words were anything to go by. Equally, there are many shows that critics have raved about and have done no business at all. So ultimately... I don't think any. It's not. It's, it's very different to New to the situation in New York, where New York. Uh, the, the New York Times used to hold personal sway. If they liked or, or, or damned something, it, that would make depend on the future of the show. Uh, Frank Rich, the, critic of, the fantastic critic of the New York Times through the whole of the 80s and the early 90s, through the Lloyd Webber era there, he was famously dubbed the butcher of Broadway because he could close a show overnight, um, literally overnight. Um, uh, whereas in London, no single critic has ever held that sort of power or sway. We are more of a collective body. And, and, and I also think that if there is a collective disdain for a show we never collude there's no there's no interval cabals meeting to say we should kill the show um if if enough people tell you the show is bad it probably is bad and if enough people tell you it's good it probably is good there's always going to be a contrary opinion among them there's there's so many critics in London so many national papers writing reviews or publishing reviews that there's never a one uh, you know a single opinion um and therefore I don't but having said all of the, that, I do take the responsibility extremely seriously. I'm very aware that that, that, that one's words do have a commercial impact and, and also a personal impact. I mean, actors will really, really be wounded or, or, or upset by what you say. Um, so um, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of that when I write. But at the same time, I've also got to ultimately answer to my reader and to myself, which is to say that Um, I can't, I mean, it means nothing. If I love everything, then my reviews are going to become become meaningless. Um, It's only because I'm prepared to go to go against a show that that the 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 positive you know the negatives um, uh, m- uh, the positives mean something as well um, and you know and sometimes personal re- you know I have lots of personal relationships in the theatre inevitably because I've been around for a while I interview lots of people I get to know people but ultimately my job is to is to re- review the show and respect the audience who are reading and buying tickets spending a lot of money on the basis of my review I never forget v- Viva Forever Forever the terrible uh, Spice Girls musical that was produced by the same woman who. Produced produced Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia, I was a huge fan of and remain a fan of. It's a really well-crafted example of its kind. But anyway, so I knew, Judy, I know Judy Kramer pretty well, the producer. And then I wrote a, a lethal review of Viva Forever because it was terrible. In fact, the first night, I'll never forget the first night because I'm sitting three, two rows behind David Beckham, which at least gave me something pretty to look at. Um, but um, uh, the, the uh, so it was a terrible show and I had to call it a terrible show. And, and a few weeks later, I ran into Judy Kramer at the theatre and she came over to me and she said, Shenton, I'm going to cut off your balls. And I, and I said, yeah, but, well, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I had to write that. But I, I, I just, you know, it, it, I, it's not a good show. And, and, uh, and, and she said, yes, but I thought we were friends. And I thought about it. when I went home and thought about it. And the next day I wrote a column. That's the, Ultimately, the critical is the last word, I'm afraid. Um, I wrote a column the next day for the stage, which I write a, been write a daily a news commentary column. And I said, and friends tell each other the truth. And, and ultimately that's what I have to stand by that that you tell the, the 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 you tell the industry the truth it may be a truth they don't want to hear it may not it may be only your truth not their truth um you know my truth is that we will rock you is not a good show in fact you know the the, the fact you know the alter fact of it uh, the alternative fact of it is that actually the audience seem to love it so what do they care what I think think
0: i think that I think that's really Really interesting. And I I think that it's very fair as well. And I, I'm I'm a firm believer in not being biased in anything. And I, I don't take criticism personally ever. I see it as an opinion. And I think that's I think that's very important. And I think as long as it's valid, as you say, as long as it's what you feel and what it's your instinct and what and how you feel is true, being true to yourself is way more important because people will respect you for being real and not trying to to get an effect, which is which is what I was saying earlier. So you've you've talk bring you you brought up the stage. You're, you're um, associate editor of the stage. You've been there since two thousand and five. Um, tell me how you got into that, uh, into getting into the stage and becoming editor. And what does that actually involve you doing? Cause are you because you're you're writing a column, obviously, for the stage. You're not just critiquing. So how do you find topics of, of interest? And
1: where's your passion lie in terms of writing for uh, for the stage? Right. The stage is one of my main outlets but it's not my only outlets I, I am a freelance cr- critic um, so it means I can write for anybody for hire so um, within reason um, I, you know I spent uh, 11 years w- alongside the stage writing for the Sunday Express and um, uh, no longer do so so you know it, it' it's basically as a freelance you take what work you can get uh, having said that you do also Pursue particular passions in journalism, what, what you actually like doing. Uh, the stage has been really wonderful for me because it, it 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 gives me a great platform and a great space because it's it's a you know the industry, it's the industry respected journal. It's been around since long before I I was born. It's been around about 135 years, um, and um, <laughs> and it's pretty impre- you know which is pretty impressive. Um, and, and so therefore, I'm part of a sort of long history of of uh, of tapestry of British theatre as a result. And um, what I do, I'm joined. Lead critic with um, chief critic with uh, uh, Natasha Tripney who's the reviews editor, and we carve out the main reviews between us. I obviously my one of my big passions in life is musical theatre, so I do all the musicals pretty much, and I do a lot of the West End plus stuff. Natasha likes new new writing; she does all the new writing venues like the Royal Court um, and so on, and the new plays at the National. Um, but it, that, that's not that's not uh, uh, strictly limited. We can do each we can go on each other's patches too. But as well as that, I've also been doing a blog column long before, you know, when when blogs were at their height, um, I, since 2005 is when I launched the split of my blog for the stage, so I, that's been going for what, that's now 12 years um, and it's a daily column, it comes I write it every single day, Monday to Friday not on the weekends, um, and that's a big journalistic challenge to come up with something fresh and interesting to say every day Um, luckily because I go to the theatre as much as I do the world throws up lots of different subjects for me every single day and also it's a great place I think for raising issues and and crusades almost. I mean um, one of my favourite quotes about me is that Michael Grandage, uh, the director who's now actually a really close friend, Michael Grandage calls me the caped crusader of the industry in other words he says that that one of the things I'm very good at and and I I take the praise uh, with, with, with a great deal of, of, of uh, uh, I'm really pleased with the praise. Um, it, it is, is, the, is that he's, uh, it, it, what it says is that I he hold the industry to account. Um, and that will be on things from from um, the restoration charges. For instance, West End theatres all charge you one pound 2 £2 a ticket, a restoration charge. We have never yet found out where that is spent, or if it's spent. Um, and so I've, I campaign for that. I've, I campaign for lots of issues. Right now, one of the things that I'm, I'm been exercised about, and I've been writing quite a lot about, is diverse casting, and the fact that uh, there are shows in the West End like Half a Sixpence, or the recent Palladium Panto, that didn't have a black face in in, in them, um, and it kind of strikes me as extraordinary that in 2017 you will not have diverse casting. Um, the uh, I mean, theatre is not a realistic medium. The the absurd uh, Julian Fellows who wrote uh, Half a Sixpence, uh, Lord Julian Fellows who obviously lives in a parallel universe. He 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 was on he was on the radio um, saying how uh, I, he said I can assure you that there were no black people in Folkestone in 1900. To which my response is, but nor were there people running down the street playing banjos um, uh, th- I mean the fact is that, that you're writing a musical musical theatre is not realistic musical theatre however should reflect the world we live in today and and uh, so I th- diverse casting is a really important um, um, thing that we the industry totally needs to address
0: I think you're right and I, I think uh, you know it was interesting I mean a few years back I think we had if I'm not mistaken were we had a we had a black Javert in Les Mis who was hugely successful at doing that, and amazing voices, and there are some incredible voices, and I think diversity is very important because, as you say, it's not real life, so it wouldn't, it doesn't really matter what colour, what race you are,
1: as long as you can play the role and you can play the part. Does it really matter? Yeah, I, I wrote a column about this this very subject this uh, last week, and um, Billy Elliot, which opened a, uh, obviously based on the film, but the musical has been has uh, has had has had like several black billies um and yet it's it's based on real a real life events 1982 the miners strike in uh, in 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 uh uh, Easington um, in in the northeast um, and uh, uh, the according to the population census which I looked up Easington uh, in 19 in 2001 I think had a 99.2 w- uh, percent white population so hardly any black people there at all uh, in 1981 there's probably even less um, so uh, and yet the show has has had several black billies um, and also when when the black Billy is on, his grandfather, his father, his grandmother, rather, his father, his brother are all white. It's it's completely accepted. The audience don't don't bat an eyelid. So this absurd argument that you have to have some kind of realism in the theatre, it's it's insane. Going on to on to producing, I mean, have you uh,
0: sometimes you th- you know we wonder whether critics are actually the best judge of whether something's going to be great or not great based obviously they have these opinions and they go to you know you go to huge amounts of theatre have you ever thought of producing yourself
1: I've often thought that uh, that producing would be a good default position. And actually quite often, um, quite a lot of critics uh, end up working in the theatre in some way or another. Um, Kate Bassett, who used to be the Independent on Sunday's critic, she's just got a new job right now as dramaturge at, uh, at, Ch- at Chichester Festival Theatre. So she's like, well, liter- literary manager. So she's going to look after finding, helping them find new plays. Um, I've been tempted, I would be tempted by that, I have to say. Uh, having said that, I think it would tie my hands a bit too much at the moment because I'm, I just love doing what I do still. Um, but uh, whether or not we have the right taste, I'm not sure um, because it's always a punt. I mean, who knows what's going to work? If if, if we knew, if everybody knew what would work, Cameron McIntosh, we everybody would be Cameron McIntosh, and Cameron McIntosh wouldn't have produced Betty Blue Eyes. Um, if everybody knew what was what, what, what would work, you just don't know. It's always a crap game.
0: And interestingly, you re- you recently wrote an article on on the, on what qualities make a you know, make, make a great producer stand out. And it's so interesting because I was only talking to somebody recently about the, the, the diversities of producers, being you're either a producer that just concentrates on the commercial aspect of investment and go out there and get investors or put the money in yourself or whatever you do to try and make a production happen, or you're what I would call, well, what I am, which is a, a creative producer. I like to get up there hands-on and create the production and be part of the production. Because I feel very passionate about the, about the show. I want to put it on because I feel passionate. I want to be part of it. I want to be musically directing it. I want to have some supervision control over it. Um, and there are those two types. Do you think that, um, again, do you think the success of one production over another has anything to do with the producer itself? Or is it really a, a matter of the creatives that
1: are behind the scenes? Well, of course, producers employ the creatives, so that's a key decision right at the front, um, and and of course, producers also have build up those relationships with the right creative people. Um, but it, I wrote that article in response to uh, the, the 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 fact that Sonia Friedman just won for the third year running the Stages Producer of the Year award, and it's no accident um, that, that, that she won that because she is truly the most uh, gifted. Current producer currently working in terms of sheer commercial commercial instinct. But it's not just that she backs the right horse, because everybody, anybody in the old days, producers would often go and see a show at the National and, and choose to back it to transfer it. She actually enters the frame at a much earlier stage. So, for instance, you know, Sunny Afternoon came from, from Hampstead Theatre to the West End. She didn't go and see it in Hampstead Theatre and buy it and take it to the West End. She took it to Hampstead for them to put on and then she took it to the West End. Right now, she's got The Ferryman, which is the new Jez Butterworth play, that she's taken to the Royal. Court to produce, and she's now going to take it to the West End. After that, she has developed the the the, the, the musical *Sunny Elf, and She's developed this play, and she has done that creatively. She is the the you know the the, the brains behind *Harry Potter and the Cursed Child*. She persuaded J.K. Rowling to to allow her. To, to, to adapt it for the, to, to do a stage version of Harry Potter she then put together uh, the brilliant team that includes Jack Thorne the writer and the uh, and, and the, the, the absolutely brilliant uh, director as well um, to, to put it on stage um, so you know that is a purely creative decision and and then of course ultimately she also would also raise the money she would also do the nuts and bolts of the contracts and the theatre hire and all of that, that background stuff that every producer must do as well um, and of course you can't be a producer unless you do the nuts and bolts, too. Um, uh, there are many producers who are p- purely pie-in-the-sky um, creatives, and then it all f- falls apart because they can't do the nuts and bolts. Um, Sonia runs a very tight ship, and and, and it's, it's an amazing operation now. Um, you know the West End would i mean she 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 said when she collected a stage award she'd done fifteen productions last year, and she's got fifteen ahead this year and you know when you think i mean a show like Harry Potter is so huge, it would be enough for one producer to only do that um, and she's done fourteen other shows. It's kind of extraordinary um so producing producers are still among the most important people we have uh, and and and, uh, and the market has you know. For years and years, it used to be an old old boys' network of just the same old guys. Um, And nowadays, it's changing hugely. There's a lot more women involved. There's a lot more younger producers involved. um, And, and of course, remember, too, that the subsidized theaters have become their own producers as well. National Theater transfer shows themselves to Broadway and to the West End. um, And the Almeida and Donmar and places like that are also hugely commercial as well.
0: It's interesting because that that leads me on to this this next subject really of, of fringe and how the how the fringe has changed and I think how the fringe has changed theater in the last few years because that we, we didn't really have a fringe uh, up to a few years ago and now suddenly all these amazing venues are popping up and all these great new productions are showing up that probably couldn't ever have been done uh, because of, of, of the size of them and where they need to where they need to to, to be and it's obviously giving advantage and, and opportunities to new producers to come on the scene how do you feel about the fringe I mean that it, it's What's slightly controversial about the fringe is the whole pay structure and the profit share and all the controversy around around that and that artists are getting paid, you know, hundred pound a week and to, to and, and doing so many shows, twenty nine shows or whatever it might be, you know. Um, how I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, for me, my opinion for what it's worth, <laughs> for what it's worth, I know I'm interviewing you. For me, I think it's an amazing platform for new talent and for emerging talent and for not not just in in the talent of of actors, but for the talent of the writers to try things out before they get the opportunities to, to go ahead.
1: But what's what's your stance on it as a professional critic? Um, the, the ecology of British theatre is very complicated and complex. Um, once upon a time we used to have Tons and tons of regional reps and and theatres producing outside of London, and it was a great way for actors and producers and creatives and directors, uh, writers to get staged works to get works staged. Um, the in the last, um, I mean, the Fringe actually has been around a lot longer than you think. Um, it, it, the 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 fr- the it has, sorry the. Um, the fringe has been around for a lot longer than you think. Um, the first London fringe theatre was the King's Head, set up in 1970 by uh, um, the, the, the late great Grant Dan Crawford. So that's 45 years ago. So it's been around a long, long time. Uh, but the proliferation of the fringe and the fact that there are so many theatres now—I um, mean, I suppose that's that—that's about uh, maybe 25 years old. Um, but. Uh, and, and of course, there's all sorts of fringe theatres. There are theatres. Many, some fringe theatres actually have a policy of trying to pay living wage. And now, um, the King's Head uh, and the Hope Theatre, for two examples in Islington, they do pay living wage. Um, and there is a lot of controversy around the low, no pay, low pay argument. Um, and and I think one of the issues around that is to do with transparency. And if you if you are not paying people properly or paying them you know, minimally, um, then nobody else should be making money from that either. And if the the books are if open books, then fine. But if they're not open books and somebody's creaming money off the off the, the top, then that's a problem. Um, I mean, because the fringe is a hugely important avenue for opportunity. I mean, frankly, why? Well, how can you stop people wanting to give give themselves a showcase? Um, and my favourite story on this is I have a friend who's uh, uh, now works a lot at the National. He's just finished to play at the National um, and. And he had done Western shows when he was younger, um, and then he, he got to a point in his career in his early 40s when he just wasn't getting work anymore, and he was driving cabs for a living. And then he did a show at the Union, um, Union Theatre in Southwark, um, and an, an agent saw him in that, he got a new agent, and he's never been out of work since. So, And it was only by taking a job at the Union that he got that. So... You know, it's chicken and egg. You 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 know, and you need to be in the theatre to be seen um, as an actor. Um, And uh, and one of the things I always often say that with with especially now with the the way journalism has changed and. Newspapers don't have money to send critics of far afield anymore, or, or much. We, we still review as much as we can in the regions, but, but not as much as it used to be done. Um, and frankly, you have more chance of being reviewed if you do a show at the Finbra, or the, or the Union, especially the Finbra, because it's, national critics go to every show there, than you would have if you were doing a show in Nottingham, because only a handful of critics will go to Nottingham, but everyone will go to the Finbra.
0: And what's amazing about the Finder is it's the tiniest theatre. It is a tiny theatre in a pub, but they produce great work, and they're doing new work all the time, which is which is fantastic. How, I mean, this may be a very su-
1: silly question, but how supportive are you of new writing? new writing is the lifeblood of, of British theatre. Um, frankly, you know, we can all live, we can live on revivals for as long as we like, but if we keep living on revivals, there'll be nothing to revive in 50 years' time. We also run out of shows, frankly, as well. I mean, Broadway went through a big period of doing endless revivals of lots of shows, uh, and actually that's all changed over the last few years. This year, there are hardly any revivals compared to new shows. I think there's something like 15 or 16 brand new musicals on Broadway this season, which is kind of incredible, given that the musical costs between three and $15 million each, so it's a lot of money that's being being put down that way, and most of them will fail. Most of those new musicals will fail, but but new, new writing is so important because um, that's how you get the 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 next. We need to tell the stories of today, and, and that's partly what new writing does, but music for in musical theatre terms, which is a form a genre I love, um, a, a lot of musicals fail, but uh, when they succeed, my God, do they succeed, I mean Hamilton is a passport to mil- gazillions of dollars, I mean it's it also is a fantastic musical, so it's changing the form, but it's also making a lot of money. And do you, how do you think? How do you think things have changed?
0: I mean, as we, we've just said, I mean, as you said, the fringe has been around for a very long time, but I think it's only really been really noticeable um, in its current form, which is, you know, there are dozens now of of theatres around doing fringe productions, which is fantastic. Just just as Broadway have the Off Broadway, we've now got our Fringe, which I think is great, and I think a lot of that stems from the you know the word Fringe from Edinburgh, for example, the Fringe Festival, and the amount of events that go on that go on around there. But do you think? Um, there's a time. I mean, w- there are lots of revivals. There's always re- revivals. There's always jukebox musicals going around, you know, re- the regions. Uh, Bill Kenwright, they're putting out the t- same shows, you know, for a long period of time on long tours. And there's, you know, there's a suggestion that 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 these old classics are coming back. I mean, Carousel's coming back to... Uh, you know this year with Katherine Jenkins and Alfie Bowe. there do the, do the classics always work which is why they keep coming back time and time and time again or do you think it's more likely that that new musicals are going to have a, mu- a much greater power and will have more chance going in, going ahead in the future
1: um- the subject of revivals is tr- is tricky because you know each each generation uh, has to what they need the last ca- the last big carousel in london there was one at the savoy about 10 years ago but but the last big big notable one was the nick then the nick Heitner one at the national in 1993 uh, 1993 which is 20 you know, something years ago now and uh, so every generation ne- these great shows deserve to be seen by each generation so i never put down a revival um, but equally as we get more and more further away from some of them, they, they, some of them are more and more clunky, and there's, you know, there's less, they've got less to tell us. Um, so I think it's on a case-by-case basis. I mean, for instance, this year, I can't wait to see The National doing Follies again. Follies is the, the great Stephen Sondheim musical from 1971, um, and that's one of the great musicals. Um, and equally, there's um, uh, a company is going to be done as well. The, um, uh, uh, in the new Marion Elliott company, is going to do company with an all-female cast, which is kind of interesting. A female Bobby um, so instead of it's, he's usually a male character so that's a really interesting idea so th- th- you can also look at classics in a new way right now on the, at the national Iver van Hove who's this amazing Belgian director he's doing um, an incredible production of Hedda Gabler which completely blows the, uh, the cobwebs off that play so you know classics are really important to do as well because they can be new plays
0: and what, what about the actor muso productions what, what's your opinion of what, what's your opinion of
1: those actor musician productions are quite an interesting beast. Um, co- originally, they were chosen as an artistic choice uh, by um, uh, developed mainly by by companies like uh, um, John Doyle uh, when he was working in regional theatre because he just didn't have the money to pay for an orchestra uh, as well as the actors. Um, and but then what became what was done of economic necessity in those days has now. Turned often into just a cheap way of doing things, um, so so uh, it's just to save money now. Um, it, you know you could afford it, but having said that, you know if if you get a production like Ragtime at the at, at the um, Charing Cross recently, um, was brilliant because. You you got more people playing. Sometimes a pit band will be you know, five or six people. When you have a full stage of thirty people all playing instruments, it sounds amazing. Um, so you know, I think it's on a case by case basis. And if they use them sensibly and intelligently, there's nothing better than a, than an active musician production. On the other hand, sometimes you know, when Mrs. Lovett, for instance, in the Sweeney Todd, you start playing playing the tuba, you start thinking, well, why is she doing that? <laughs> Quite. Um, <laughs> and.
0: And who, who, um, who inspires you now? I mean, you must have had your, your sort of influences as you were growing up and as you were getting into journalism and writing more and more and more. But what keeps your passion alive? What, what inspires you now? What are your influences?
1: Um. What inspires me is finding the next great thing. Um, so, for instance, you know Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote um, um, Hamilton, is hugely inspirational. Next to normal, one of the great Broadway musicals of the last ten years, I think, uh, a show, a musical about mental illness, um, is kind of spellbinding and brilliant. And it's obviously you keep chasing that that high, that the high of seeing a show as good as as as, as that. Um, but you know, I. I I'm still inspired by the old shows too. I mean, you know, when you go and see a show, uh, I mentioned Promises, Promises, and I'm going to see again next week, the the craft of of those great Burt Baccarat songs. It's it's a crying shame that Burt Baccarat never wrote another stage musical after Promises, Promises. Um, But there are so many great people, there are so many great shows that have been written, and, you know, I never tire of seeing those either. So I think inspirations are anybody who's doing great work and and great performers. I mean, I also just adore, I mean, Audra McDonald, who's the, great Broadway, the greatest Broadway singer of her generation. Um, there's nothing more inspiring than watching Audra uh, perform. I mean, she's incredible. It's it's just spellbinding. I also, at the same time, I teach as well. And one of the other strands uh, to, to my career is I now teach at Arts Ed. Um, and I'm watching, you know, I, I've talked to for five years now and I've seen... Uh, I'm now about to see my, my third lot graduate. Um, and there's, there's, there's nothing more inspiring than watching um, the, the next generation of performers coming through as well. I mean, one of the, the students I taught um, in his first year, he graduated last September. And four days later, he was on a plane to New York to take over as the alternate Elder Price on Broadway in the Book of Mormon. That's thrilling, thrilling. Now, I had a very tiny part in his education, tiny, but I still feel that I've passed the torch a little bit.
0: And I think one of the great things about teaching, as I do, is 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 you feel like you're inspiring others, and you feel like you're helping others to, to be their very best. Do you ever get, what, Tell me a little bit more about the teaching and what and what you do within that. But but also, what um, at what point do you get nervous? Because I think as a critic, you're you're in a way a kind of performer as well. You're performing with your, you know, it's an art. Writing is an art. At what point do you get nervous? Do you get, do you get nervous perhaps when you're just about to submit something and you're pressing that button to publish or it's going to go onto Twitter and someone's going to suddenly see what you've just written about their production? At what point do you get nervous?
1: Uh, you can't afford to be too nervous about all the stuff you put out there because, I mean, at the same time, you have to be—you totally be responsible for it and, I, and own it. I always think if critics give criticism, they have to be able to take it. And and one of the things I'm, I'm you know, I'm not shy of taking criticism um, for, for that reason. Um, uh, but uh, n- nerves, I mean. Only once in a blue moon do I do I truly get starstruck if I'm interviewing somebody. Uh, I never forget the first time I had to interview, and I've now interviewed her three times. First time I had to interview Angela Lansbury, I was like shaking because she's such a legend. Um, but um, but actually, by and large, uh, you know, I'm not intimidated by that because I'm doing a job and they're doing a job. Um, in, in terms of. N- not, not when I'm reviewing, you can't afford to have nerves when you're reviewing because you have to be confident that you're gonna come up with something. One, one thing I, I, I often think, um, I sometimes sit down at the computer and after a first night and have no idea what I think, feel about a play sometimes because it hasn't gestated yet in your head and you just start and the, the act of writing the review forms your opinion um, and, and, and it's a really interesting discipline. So, so I, I'm, I'm never, I'm never, I never find myself short of a thing to say that I can believe um, and you men- you mentioned your teaching I just wanted to uh, just
0: to, to go on about that a little bit tell us, tell us a little bit about about the teaching you do at art, art said because uh, as I said that's that's something inspiring inspiring young people yeah
1: um, I, I teach at other places too but art said is the place where I do most of my teaching now um, and um, and I, I teach uh, for five years now I've been teaching the first year musical theater students their first first term and their third term I teach them uh, a, a very Basic history of musical theatre. Um, it's called contextual studies, and I what I. Try to do. Uh, I flippantly sometimes say I teach them that there were musicals before Wicked. Um, but, uh, but 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 and actually, one of the things I'm, I I definitely do is I definitely teach them that Boudreau McDonald's the greatest thing on the planet, and I also teach them that Barbara Cook you, you know, is one of the most inspiring voices they could ever hear. Um, so that my sort of life's life's journey is to tell them that. Um, but I also you know, go through all the history of musical theatre from from the beginning to, to now, and and uh, and it's it's just entertaining for them and entertaining for me. I I think. Uh, I also teach the acting students, and I, uh, with acting students, you, I can't obviously teach the history of world drama, because that goes back a long, long, much further than musical theater, but I do contemporary plays and playwrights with them, and I sometimes get uh, living playwrights in to talk to them, so I've had, uh, the first time I did it, I got Simon Stevens in, and I got Tim Blake-Wurtenbaker in, and, and, and it's just a lovely way of them connecting with real artists.
0: I just gotta, to, just to, to, to sum up now, do you have ambition? I mean, do you are there are there things that you still want to do in your life and you think I really want to I've got the goal, I really want to head for there. There's my ambition, that's what I really I'd
1: love to be able to do that. The interesting thing is, I always, always wanted to be a theatre critic, and 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 the interesting thing thing is that once upon a time, pre-internet, uh, it was incredibly difficult to do that because you'd always have to wait for somebody to die before you could get a job as a theatre critic. And um, I mean, frankly, you know, Michael Billington has been a theater, the theatre critic of the Guardian since 1972. He's been in that post for 46 years now, um, and 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 uh, you know, people don't fall off their perch that often, so the, the jobs didn't come up. And then, of course, the world changed with the arrival of the internet in the late 90s, and and that, and then. Many more opportunities to be critics emerged, um, and I was probably a beneficiary of that a bit because I, early on, I wrote to write for the for what's on stage, and and uh, and, to, and and have in, online journalism has been a major spur of my career as well. But um, so I, but I do find it kind of astonishing that given how little the opportunities to to be a critic were, that I did fulfil that ambition. So I've ticked that box. Um, I suppose that the only thing I could possibly think of, if I wanted to do something else or one more thing, would be to live in New York as in, uh, and, and uh, in, as well as London. I mean, I already do live in London and New York. I have a, my husband and I have an apartment in New York, which uh, uh, was a fulfillment of a lifelong dream to, to, to get a place there. But but I mean, actually go and live there and work there. I I just basically it's just a, a glorified um, holiday destination. Um, and, um, and 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 but but you know what. I, I think I'd miss London too. So I think I kind of have the best of both worlds now. I I live in London, but I go to New York a lot.
0: Mark Shenton, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, there you have it, the great Mark Shenton, and a great interview it was. It was such a privilege and honour to uh, to do that interview, and I'm so grateful. So thank you so much to my very special guest. Don't forget to check out the website at www.alifeinmusic.com and to subscribe to the podcast. And please tell your friends about it. The more listeners we get, the more great content we can get to you. So thanks again, and don't forget, be
1: your very best.